In this episode of Boss Files. My parents lived a life of service and taught me as I was growing up about having service is a very important part of what we did. They were very engaged in our community uh, and my father spent his entire career first at the state level, then he went to war, World War II, and then at the federal level uh, fighting poverty and hunger that resulted from the Great Depression. My mother, I remember from those era time periods, my mother grabbed me by the hand and saying, Let's go see what's around that next corner. Billionaire investor Glenn Hutchins. He's a force behind some of the biggest tech companies around. Uber, Tesla, Alibaba, and Dell. Part owner of the Boston Celtics, and he sits on the board of AT&T, of course CNN's parent company. How his childhood living around the world shaped his future and his commitment to improving race relations in the U.S., He funded the Hutchins Center for African and African-American Research at Harvard University with a $25 million donation. So it prompted me to ask him, what drove a rich white guy from New York to care so much about race relations? There are great parallels between the 10 years of the Reconstruction period and then followed by the Ku Klux Klan and Jim Crow. Significant period to eight years of having an African-American president followed by an alt-right counter-reaction. Look at Charlottesville. Charlottesville. Direct line to Charlottesville. A self-described democratic capitalist, Hutchins says we need to reform capitalism so it works for more Americans. Also, why he favors regulating big tech. Plus, why he calls blockchain, quote, the Internet of value and his bet on the future of cryptocurrency. Here's my conversation with Glenn Hutchins. Glenn Hutchins, thanks for joining me. Good morning. So let me just read a little bit. Chairman of North Island, co-founder of Silver Lake, board of directors of the Federal Reserve of New York, board of directors of AT&T, which I should note is our parent company. Right. AT&T CEO Randall Stevenson quoted in the Times saying of you, you are one of the world's preeminent technology investors. Doesn't end there. Director of Virtue Financial, chairman of Brookings, vice chairman of the Economic Club of New York, part owner of the Boston Celtics, co-chairman of Harvard University's capital campaign, board member of the Center for American Progress, board member of the Obama Foundation. So, quite a resume. It exhausts me reading it. And, and mediocre golf. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but the reason I just did that, and I don't normally start interviews out that way, is because I want to start with who is Glenn Hutchins outside of all of that? Meaning, what was it like growing up, Glenn Hutchins? That's an interesting question. So I would make uh, maybe two points about that, Poppy. Uh, one was when my... Uh, mother was baking cookies uh, when I was a kid in the kitchen. Uh, the question we'd ask each other was not kind of when could we have one, but what charity was she supporting this week? Really? Yes. Uh, my parents um, lived a life of service and taught me as I was growing up uh, about uh, having service is a very important part of what we did. Hmm. They were very engaged in our community. Uh, and my father spent his entire career first at the state level, then he went to war, and then World War II, and then at the federal level, uh, fighting po- poverty and hunger that resulted from the Great Depression. He did. He did. Your father's my father l- did. life was very much dedicated to fighting right. inequity. Well, not he didn't think about it that way. It was really poverty and hunger. He grew up on a farm in the Great Depression mm-hmm. uh, and understood and was trained uh, in school, college, uh, in some of the, what, what we now call sociology, with the techniques for addressing social problems. Sure. And then brought that as a science first at the state level where he worked on areas like uh, 
flood relief, nutrition, uh, um, crop rotations, erosion control, uh, nutrition, those sort of issues. He was an agronomist. And then he worked for the Department of Agriculture all of his life, doing the, bringing those same understandings to the national level. What, what about, uh, and then abroad. What, uh, about, what about your mom? What, 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 what is the largest, most significant impact you think she had on your life? Well, okay, so in addition to the service, and this gets in by the second piece of yeah. this, so let me give you the second major influence. So in the early 60s, when um, America became wealthier than my parents had ever imagined, yeah. uh, the, the techniques that he had, we had learned about addressing rural poverty and hunger in the United States were applicable abroad. My father um, helped to create something called the Food for Peace program, and then went outside the United States to administer it. And so that was when we moved to the Middle East. Right. And I spent the next 10 years of my life living in uh, the Middle East, Eastern Europe, and Western Europe. How old um, were you I was those so, 10 years? In those 10 years, I was 8 to 18 years old. Oh, wow. Essentially, maybe, maybe even longer than that. It was probably even until I was in my 20s. Uh, and so then what did my mother do? My mother, I remember from those era, time periods, my mother grabbed me by the hand and saying, Let's go see what's around that next corner. Really? Yes. Oh, I love so that. So she took me. Uh, my par- my siblings were mo- much older. They were in the United States in school. It was my, you know, it was my mom. I was my mom's quote unquote only child during that time period. Mm-hmm. And we explored the wonders of, of like of literally first, of the, the world, though. of the world, together. You, oh, that's such a gift. I mean, I I right. think the greatest gift my parents gave me. Two, a great education, but also they, we, I grew up in Minnesota, but they, they took me all over the world, truly, yeah, exactly. and that exposure and that travel. But I, I remember one of my great memories was we uh, took sleeping bags on Christmas Eve and went into the holiest of the holiest churches in Jerusalem and spent Christmas Eve and woke up on Christmas morning at the, uh, near the tomb of Christ. Wow. As an example. On Christmas morning. Christmas morning, as an example. You also... We, we camped out in the desert in Egypt among the great ruins, which would now be off limits wow. for people to even get near to, and we camped among them. You were also... Went to all the great museums in the world, et cetera, et cetera. And, and, and then there are sort of harrowing moments. I mean, you and your mother were on the last plane out of Cairo. That was an interesting moment. It was, it was late 60s, 1967, late 60s. Okay. six-day war. Yeah, yeah sure. Uh, and a long story... Uh, it, but I was actually reminded of it recently because a relative of mine found a recording my father had made when he was younger than I am now ex- telling us that story again. But in the late 60s, uh, there was a, we lived, were living in Cairo. Uh, there was a run-up to the war with Israel during that time period uh, in which there were the American embassy was attacked, a library was burnt to the ground, uh, there were large demonstrations, there were anti-American, anti-Israeli demonstrations, billboards, all sorts of propaganda campaigns are anti-American. It was a very hostile time period in which to be there. Um, and when the, um, the war finally broke out, my father turned out to be responsible for the evacuation. So he organized the evacuation of all the Americans in Cairo. Um, as a consequence, which he put his family on the last plane out. I was going to ask you that. So my mother and I left uh, early one morning. And within an hour, the Egyptians had, oh. the Israelis had taken out the Egyptian Air Force on the ground at the airport. He stayed? He stayed. Uh, and he was there about 10 days when he was, you would call him today a hostage. Uh, but in those days, he was uh, he was in, in the, yeah. being held prisoner inside the American embassy with Jeez. about a hundred other Americans who had been left behind. And then he organized their second evacuation about ten days later from Alexandria. Wow. They had to get yeah. themselves to Alexandria, get out because the Ameri- the Israeli army had taken out the uh, all of the uh, airport facilities that the Egyptian Air Force used, which were also the commercial airports. So you grew up in a life of service. Um, did you grow up wealthy? No, 
No, precisely. Well, we were, we were rich in everything but money. Sure. But, but now here you are, a very wealthy investor and philanthropist. And I'd say sort of student, it seems like you're always learning more and always wanting to learn more. Um, since 2013, Glenn, you've given, as I understand it, $25 million to build the Hutchins Center for African and African-American Research at Harvard. Correct. So how did a rich white guy from New York get to care so much for this cause? That's interesting. That's an interesting question. So um, uh, what we... The, this was before that, but um, did you ever see, I saw recently um, uh, To Kill a Mockingbird on Broadway. It's just phenomenal. Phenomenal. And what it reminded me of was there's this stereotype of the South in which all the whites were racist and, and were oppressing the African Americans. And what, what, um, what To Kill a Mockingbird rep- reminds us is that there were also Atticus Finches. So are you Atticus Finch? My family was part of the Atticus Finch elements of Southern society. They were pro-integration, anti-desegregation, anti-Jim Crow laws. They, fight, they fought for uh, civil rights. Uh, again, my father's primary focus was elsewhere. But my mother, at age 43, went to see Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. Wow. On the, on the mall in Washington when we were living there. So they were part of that community all of our lives. Right. Uh, and so when I had a chance to... Um, to begin my philanthropy, uh, that struck me as a very, very important problem that was as yet addressed. Well, that's, that's saying a lot because that's 2013. Um, it was actually started well before that, but 2013 okay. was when we made the announcement. But still, I mean, you still saw that the greatest need for your money, at least at, you know, at, at Harvard, at your alma mater, was on the issue of racial relations in this country. Post the Obama you know, first election in 2008. Um, and I, I just think if you could speak to that, because you've spoken before and you've said that, you know, essentially just because we elected a black president doesn't mean we don't have a huge race issue in this country. Actually, if you look at, um, if you watch, and I recommend everybody do, Skip Gates's, Henry Louis Gates Jr., otherwise yeah. known as Skip. Yeah. Skip Gates' new documentary called Stony the Road. It's about, it's about the period of Reconstruction and then following that afterwards, the rollback of it. Yeah. Um, and um, the parallels to the time period in which we're living today are uncanny. To the Reconstruction. Yes. And so what you essentially had, in other words, it is entirely possible, Skip makes this argument implicitly in his, in his, uh, in his um, the series, that the eight years of an African-American president brought latent racism to the surface in the United States and made it worse rather than Do better. Do you think it did? Uh, the, the, it seems to be the case. There are great parallels between the 10 years of the Reconstruction period and then followed by the Ku Klux Klan and Jim Crow. The significant periods to eight years of having an African-American president followed by an alt-right uh, counter-reaction. Look at Charlottesville. Charlottesville. Direct line to Charlottesville. So that's kind, of, that's kind of point one. Point two is that it's a very, very significant issue at the heart of many, many things about America, our culture, our society, our politics, our business, everything. Um, and the amount of money we gave, which is large, you mentioned it was $25 million, is even to this day the largest gift ever made for anything associated with African-American affairs, including the museum in Washington, D.C. Wow. 
So it's, a, uh, it's not a, uh, an area that has attracted a huge amount of philanthropy. So the, 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 the other part of it about this which appealed to me was that it was an area of enormous need for research and yeah. focus that was starved for resources compared to other philanthropic. This, right, you could have given that money and gotten a wing at the Met. But that wasn't of interest to you. Well, yeah, I'm not. Yeah, I'm, yeah. yeah. But then, and then the third thing, which was was, was quite interesting, was that um, Skip and I work together as partners. Very seldom do um, uh, does any academic really find a, you know a, a heathen like me kind of uh, interest, uh, interesting as a real partner. But he really embraced the partnership. And what we did was to create a, depart- a center at Harvard Yes, that was on the day, the day it opened the world's leading center for African-American research. Because there had been these individual elements around Harvard, there are eight of them, we created a ninth, which was an art gallery, that were each the leader in their field, but were operating independently. But you brought them together. We brought them together and created altogether enormous strength. Yeah. So the story of how you met, as you call him, Skip, and we outsiders know him as the famous Harvard professor, Henry right. Louis Gates, is on Martha's Vineyard, a place you adore. Right. In a come visit. In a way, it's a beautiful place. In a whaling chapel. Right. That's true. That sparked all this. Well, no. So what happened was that friendship yeah. between you two. Well, what happened was I had I was approaching my 25th reunion at Harvard, uh, and I had um, been persuaded by another friend of mine who was in the president, Larry Summers, to make a gift. Yeah. Had not designated my gift yet, uh, and it was I, I suppose the story's been told enough now. I can tell you, it was a million dollars. Uh, and so I had a million dollars to direct somewhere at Harvard. Skip gave a, a symposium at the Whaling Church, which is the, one of the largest venues in, on Martha's Vineyard where people can gather, the old Whaling Church. Yeah. It was the place where the whaling captains and, would go before they went to sea to pray, and their families would pray for their safe return. That's why it's called the Whaling Church. Uh, and um, so he had a, a, a symposium. It was really fascinating. I... Um, was way underdressed. I was wearing a wet bathing suit and a t-shirt. I'd come from the beach. Everybody else in the church was dressed for church. Sure. Um, so I was hiding in the back. But then afterwards, I was so inspired by what I saw, I rushed to the front. I said, I'm going to give you my 25th reunion gift to Harvard. Skip says later that he thought I was going to come ask him for money. <laughs> he sort of sloughed me off, saying that he didn't think it was, um, uh, you know, so it might be $500 or something. And then a couple weeks later, when someone called him up and said, Glenn Hutchins just gave you a million dollars. He was knocked out of his chair. Wow. So, <laughs> so that's the funny thing. That is a great And story. then he tried to figure out, you know, right, who is this person and why did he do this? Right. But you two have become very close. Yeah, and he's, he's, well, he's, and a, he's, a, he's a really, really wonderful human being in addition to being a national treasure. What do you hope that not only that contribution of $25 million, but building the center can accomplish. If we are in what you say a period akin to the, to, to the Reconstruction, and if things we know from the polling and recent Pew polling how you know, bad race relations in this country have, have gotten, um, what, what can you do? What can that center do? What's, what's going to make you say at the end of the day, Glenn, that was a really worthwhile investment? Well, the center does two important things. The first is it brings people from different disciplines together to share their thoughts. It's like a Bell Labs for African-American research, where they had you know, a bunch of different scientists who came together, and magic comes from the, sure. from the sharing of ideas among many different people. That's kind of one thing. So we brought all the best people, not all, but many, many of the best people in the world around this subject in one place. And that's combustible, if you know what I mean. Uh, and then the second piece which we've done is to take the uh, ideas of the academy and translate them into something that's accessible in the public square. 
Uh, and that's what Skip's done with the, the series, Tony the Road. Yep. It's what we do with things like the symposiums. Uh, one of the very important, as an example of a contribution, is Skip has used a, a combination of historical research and, and genetic analysis to give African Americans a past Lineage. when they didn't have one before. Yeah, well, it's so important. Because the, the, you know, the slave ships did not keep any records, um, so the African Americans right. didn't know where they came sure. from. Sure. Um, and also to tell the story of the African American experience. So to actually create understanding, mm -hmm. dialogue, yeah, talk, step forward, uh, and you know the um, and um, we and one and one would hope third that by drawing attention to what's happening now, yeah, and putting it in a historical context, allowing people to understand it, you then can mitigate its consequences and maybe shorten its how long uh, how so, long it occurs. So, so the president, President Trump. Often points I mean, you know, I thought you were talking about President Obama. Well, yes, now I'm talking about President Trump. I'm just kidding. What did, what did you say? When I say the president, I mean President Obama. Yeah. It's just a joke. It, but people should know you're not a fan of the, no. the president's policies. So, President Trump often points to African-American unemployment and the statistics from the Labor Department that it has fallen to 6.6 during 6.6% during his presidency, the lowest rate on record dating back to mid-70s. Does he deserve credit for that? So I would say a couple of things. Um, let's take a step back. One is that um, there has been no greater uh, increase, no acceleration in the trend of job creation that's occurred in the United States during the Trump administration from what the Obama administration created. And this notion that, that one person takes credit and the other, it's just kind of a silly thing. The recovery from the financial crisis has, uh, has uh, continued uh, unabated during this time period. One, two, is I think that the um, steps that the Trump administration has taken with respect to economics, I've described them as irresponsible. Um, the, um, they made a bunch of promises to people that they have not kept. Uh, and their major economic uh, p policies, which are one, uh, the tax cut mm -hmm. uh, went, went largely to, sh mit was intermediated through corporations to shareholders. Uh, and then the um, uh, tariffs we were not talking about on China essentially affect a, a, or in effect a, a consumption tax on the poorest Americans. Yeah, and so I, and by the way, farmers. And farmers. Really That's what I mean. I'm not, I'm, not talking, I'm, not talking about, yeah. I'm not talking about race here. Right. Uh, and then third, it's very, very clear to me and others that he played the race card during his um, uh, uh, campaign. Uh, that's largely around, um, you know, poor Hispanics at the border, but it's still very much a race card. Uh, and what he said in the wake of Charlottesville is inexcusable. More from my conversation with Glenn Hutchins after the break. So when you look at um, the data, um, there still is such economic disparity in this country uh, when it comes to African, many African-Americans. People are talking more now about the idea of reparations. And you even have some 2020 candidates like Senator Cory Booker um, who have put forth legislation to, to study that and what reparations might look like. Um, in the wake of, of, of slavery and that, that horrific past that is very much America's. Uh, what, what do you think about that? So I haven't thought a lot about reparations. Let me give you a different point of view about this. So I would say two kinds of things. 
One is that I think, um, I wrote an article about this a few years ago, um, but I think that the biggest, if you actually study what Americans say, um, for instance, study years of pupils, as an example, what you find is that economic insecurity is the biggest issue in the American You household. wrote that, Wall Street Journal op-ed, right. right? The I word out of our debates is, is insecurity. Security. Now, I'm not saying inequality is unimportant. Right. But I'm saying that it, the kitchen table issues of making ends meet, providing health care, yeah. paying the rent, you know, educating our kids, those are considerably more important issues than my wealth relative to somebody else's and sort of for people. And so I think what we should be doing is focusing on a series of, of policies that help people um, at the lower end of our socioeconomic spectrum so have a secure security in their lives, you know, living wage, health care, retirement, et cetera, education for the kids. That should be our priority. Um, that's pr- point one. Point two is I believe that we should do that um, irregardless of uh, race. In other words, I think that uh, we should be helping uh, the poor white people in rural communities who have very, very similar issues with respect to drug problems. It might be oxycodone rather yeah. than, you know, uh, the inner city type of drugs with job loss, economic engines leaving their communities very sure. similar to the way they, they left the cities with uh, the breakdown in family structures. I mean, all the kinds of issues we see. Um, I don't think we should define with respect to race. I just don't think that uh, Michael Jordan or Barack Obama's children need any kind of affirmative action, whereas children of some of these families in the rural communities that have been left behind do. Uh, if we defined all that by, by economics, not race, you would still help all of the African-Americans needed it's help. It's so interesting. But you'd add a group of people who equally need our help. And I think that is the more important issue than going back to our history and trying to understand kind of how we got here. We could do that, too. I'm not saying we should do that, shouldn't do that. I'm just saying that's how I would think about it. So one other proposed solution, for example, um, Democratic candidate Andrew Yang wrote a whole book about this. Andrew Yang. Who? He's actually polling above (laughs) 1%. I think he's going to make the debate stage. Oh, good. Um, Uh, Your debate. The uh, CNN debate. Yeah, maybe all of them. (laughs) I'm sorry. No, no, no. But he, he... wrote a whole book on this, literally wrote a book on it. Right. Um, and it's been widely debated. UBI, Universal Basic Income. Right. Which essentially for people listening who don't know what that is, you give everyone, including you and me who don't need it, you know, like $1,000 a month, for example. And it's a base. Is that a good idea? You know, um, so there are a couple of different things. come up. I haven't studied that particular proposal. I've talked about with I understand about the Universal Basic Income. I'm a pragmatist. And so my view is let's think about things we can actually get done both politically and then we can afford within the context of kind of the, the budget process. Oh, I don't think Congress cares about affording anything anymore. By well, the way. Looking I, at our I, debt and deficit, which we'll talk come about. Come back to that in a minute. I but think I we should you. care about it. And so um, I, would, I would go ch- hit, ch- chip away at kind of really issues that you delivered people today. So a couple of weeks ago I was at a meeting and um, I observed – an event in, in Las Vegas where the uh, Service Employees International Union welcomed six of the presidential candidates mm. and the uh, and um, uh, minimum wage workers from around the country were asking the candidates questions. Oh, what did they say? It was very interesting. It was, um, and there wasn't, by the way, a single question about universal basic income. Okay. That's All my right. point. All right. Right. What their questions were, were why can't the minimum wage be $15? Yeah. Right. By the way, to think about this in a very simple way, 
uh, multiply that times two, and that's the thousands of dollars someone makes a year. So if someone has a $15 minimum wage, that's about a $30,000 income. Yeah. Okay, just take that 15 times two, and that's your $30,000, right? Think about living in any city in the United States, raising a couple of kids as a single mom on $30,000. Yeah, no, you can't do it. Can't do that. But that's an aspiration. By the way, there's another argument which is really quite interesting, which is, you know, a lot of those folks then have to go on to the stamp and other programs. And the government is subsidizing. The argument being the government is subsidizing companies not paying. But who's paying the taxes of the government? In other words, other businesses and households are subsidizing the minimum wage companies who aren't paying their their employees. Yeah, is that a problem? Well, it's it's kind of, it raises an interesting question to go to the other employers in town and say, this group of people is is creating an expense for you that you're subsidizing. Why shouldn't that employer pay them someone a wage? So should they? Look, I believe that there, we should have a, a, a higher minimum wage. A higher federal minimum wage, because many states and or do at now. the state level. And should it, it be? I mean, I know it's different from yeah. in rural Minnesota or here in New York, but is fifteen dollars an hour, Glenn? Strikes a, me as a good strikes place me to as start? strikes me as horribly low. I, it's a that's a horribly good place. Low. Of course, it's a good, but it's a but, good place to start. But, of but course, I'm but that's kind of one. The first is we need a higher minimum wage at a level at which someone can actually live a life. So, like twenty twenty five. I don't know what the exact number is, and you're right. It's it will vary by where people live. That's kind of one. The second is we need to provide for people's health care. That's why I think some of these uh, expansion of Medicare proposals are quite good ones. I, th- I think it would be politically foolish, and I think it's also po- bad from a policy perspective to take away people's private health care to go to sort of Bernie Sanders' Medicare for all thing. But to have an option where people can opt into Medicare if they don't have health care or if they don't, get it from, don't like what they get from their employer so that we actually provide health care for everybody, I think that's probably a good way to go, secondly. Um, I think we have to put a fair amount of resources, find a way to put a fair amount of resources into our public schools so that these folks' kids can go to get a good education because after you, after you kind of put a roof over your head and food on the table, you provide health care for your family, then you need education. And then we should um, uh, fully fund Social Security. And all of these programs should, in my view, be, we should change the concept of them from insurance programs that you were, this is something you said earlier, that all of us get to explicit income transfer programs where the people who have benefited enormously from the economic uh, trends of the last 15 to 20 years explicitly put money back into the lower echelons of our society to make those, make those people's lives healthy, respectable, and dignified. So that means, I think that would mean the simplest way to, to hash that out would be rich people paying more in taxes. Or not taking Social Security. Okay. Not getting Medicare. Okay. Why do, I, why do we need, if we, if we can afford uh, a healthy, comfortable retirement, why do, why do we, just because we paid into Social Security, why should we take it out? Why can't we take those resources and explicitly put them in a place where people need it? few proposals on the table. That's called means testing, but it's more sure. than that. I think it's more, but I'm arguing for a conceptual change in the way we think about these of programs. Of course, of how we think about it. Right. Um, few proposals that would get at a little bit of that. Uh, Congresswoman from New York, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, says we should have a 70% margin. Who? Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. She's a Democrat. You're a Democrat, <laughs> but you're not a fan. No, I said earlier she's thir- she was 13 minutes under 15 minutes of fame. Okay. Well, why? we'll see. Who knows? We'll come back to it, yes. But she has proposed 70% marginal tax rate on your $10 million and above. You've got a lot of those dollars above $10 million. Would you right. pay it? 
Is it a look, good idea? Uh, I, uh, look, I don't buy into that idea. But the, Nancy Pelosi said that, we, that people like uh, that, that congressman need to develop a respect for the congressmen, often women, veterans, uh, who got elected in moderate districts and who have to, who aren't in safe seats where everybody thinks pretty much alike. Um, so the question is, how do we get, I said, I'm a pragmatist, how do we sell that? So you're thinking it's not palatable? And, I mean, I, my view, my personal view is, I, I, would I be willing to pay higher taxes? Of course. Is there, would I want to do that in the context of something that addresses these issues that I talked about? and um, was on a path, put us on a path of fiscal responsibility in our country. Yes. Uh, what does that look like? To me, that looks a lot like the Clinton-era tax rates. So I don't think that's a, quote, tax increase. I think that's a kind of return to sort of a, a period in which we actually balanced the budget and had 3% economic growth. So then that you, felt pretty good to me. So then do you would also not be supportive of Elizabeth Warren's proposed wealth tax, which is not, which is interesting. It's different. It's not just an income tax. It's an asset tax above 50 million. Yeah. I, I, look, I think there are a whole host of technical issues with that. If you know what I mean, in terms of how do you measure it? How do you pay it? If it's, you know, uh, but I, I see, I see that not as a real, again, I'm going to go back to being pragmatic. What can get done? I see that as being a lot less about pragmatic um, policy proposals and more like sort of um, an attention-seeking and successful headline. For a candidate. Right, for a candidate. So this gets to the fundamental debate, a fundamental debate in this country and in this election right now, which is socialism versus capitalism. And I almost fell over when I saw the Gallup polling six months ago or so that showed that more Democrats in this country, Democratic voters, now have what they would call a positive view of socialism than capitalism. Um, what, what do you make what of those about, numbers? So uh, let me make two or three or four points on this. One, one, we Because you about, lived in a socialist country. Yeah, it doesn't work. <laughs> Full stop. It doesn't work. It would be a bad idea, right? Um, so that's kind of one thing. But for those people, respectfully, okay, but, the, capitalism isn't working for them, right? Yeah, okay, got it. So, but, um, so the second point I should make is that um, what I say to my, my uh, many friends in business who, um, who are more conservative than me, and I say, I'm willing to listen to what you have to say because I want to learn from you. Right. But I don't want to listen to you replaying a Republican talking point to me as if it's your discovered wisdom. <laughs> right. No talking points. No talk. So the notion that the Democrats are going to be our socialists is a Republican talking point. People went into a room several uh, months ago unless and you're came, Bernie Sanders, came who up with that idea. Described democratic socialist. Yeah, but Bernie Sanders lost last time, right? I understand, but that's the the but the because the, the thing to remember the actual numbers on this you know they talk about this uh, the, our congressman from uh, Queens and and, and the Bronx. Um, the the note the reason why forty of the thirty eight of the forty seats that were flipped in the House were not didn't look like the Bronx and didn't look like a suburb in Minnesota in Minneapolis. Right. They looked, they were one, largely women, oftentimes veterans or intelligence officers, mm -hmm. who ran from the middle on health care. Yeah. Right. And so to that is very, very different than the comparable time period in, two, in, in um, 2010 when the Republican Tea Party took the, took the House of Representatives and they took control from the extreme right wing with the Tea Party. Here's, this yeah. was a victory from the middle. 
So you're saying to your party, don't so, stray from that. So the, the reality of the most recent political outcome is exactly the opposite of what we're being told. Yet, okay, That's so point two. Let me build on that because okay. because of that and because a lot of that win in the House in the 2018 midterms was because of health care for the Democrats. Why are so many then of the 2020 Democratic contenders for the White House uh, signing on to and supporting a Medicare for all? That's not so many of them actually. It's well, quite the okay. opposite. Cory Booker, Eric no, Swalwell. Okay, let me. Let me think, so I've just had a conversation about. Uh, but so, yet they won't. But the, yet they still say that they want corporations to be able to keep people to keep yeah. private insurance. Listen, what they what they what they're arguing what they're arguing for, with the exception of, of uh, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, and maybe Kamala Harris. Kamala sort of trying to find her way, as I understand it, on this issue, um, is what I just described, mm -hmm. which is let's add another, let's allow people who don't have health care to sign up for, for Medicare. Yeah, That's just, not t taking people out, taking existing people out of their I guess, private health care. I guess what I'm asking you is a lot of them have co-sponsored this legislation, including Senator Booker, Congressman Swalwell, but then say in interviews on CNN, but I still want a, pri a, right. a private option. Right. So that's but that isn't what the bill is. I guess I'm just asking about Americans. Like, is this, a, is this, is this politics? Is this them selling it because they think more and more Americans want this? Yeah, so, so let me give you the, let me take a step back and give you the third answer I was sort of working sure. toward. Was one is I've, I've seen examples of communism and socialism that don't work. Second is I think that um, to, to describe the Democratic Party as going to the extreme left is, is to ignore the facts of the most recent election. Okay. Right. The third is kind of what are the issues? You've heard people like, you know, Jamie Dimon, uh, Ray Dalio, Steve Schwarzman beginning to talk about this. This is not sort of, you know, left wing uh, politics. The notion is how do we, as we have done many times in the past, most notably during the, uh, in the outcome of the Great Depression during the FDR time period, yes. we have ref taken reforms on in our country to address problems that result from, that are, side effects of the miracles of capitalism. Sure. Right. That's and an so, interesting way to put it. Yeah, side effects of the, because, yeah. So how do we go about doing that now? Uh, and that's what the real, so people call it reforming capitalism. Uh, but, and then others want to say, well, you're, are you questioning capitalism? Are you socialist? No, you're, like, the, creating the Securities Exchange Commission to make the capital markets kind of function fairly and more efficiently was not an attack on capitalism. That was actually a vast improvement in one of the key mechanisms of capitalism, which is markets. Sure. Okay. So that's an, so what do, the question is, what do we do today to make this system that we have that has, that has served us so well for such a long time period yes. adapt to the demands of today's economy? What have we learned from this? So the, that's why I was talking about earlier what we do with respect to minimum wage, yeah. health care. That was exactly what I was thinking about. So to that point... Is capitalism as we know it, as it exists right now, working for enough Americans? It's a really, uh, I would, th the answer, of course, is no. Is it working for a lot? Yes. Is it working for the vast preponderance? Probably. But are there people who have been left behind that we need to think hard about? Yeah. Yes. Is it a, is it a really good investment on the part of the people who have been successful in the system to, to invest in social stability in order to kind of, continue to have this, yeah. this foundation upon which they continue to build business? Of course. The, that's my argument. My argument, I wrote an article in the Washington Post 2016 about this during the election campaign. Um, it is, uh, it is, it would be a very, very, very good investment on the part of people who have been successful to put some money back in through the tax system 
into a set of initiatives along the lines that I described that would allow us to let everybody share in the next benefits of that growth in our economy through the capitalist system and then get on with that. Do you believe you mentioned tax reform just helping largely helping shareholders and it brings me to the question of, of, of share buybacks. I think we saw a record number of share buybacks last year. We're on track for another record this year. Um, you've called the GOP tax cuts a huge error and, and a one-year sugar high. Um, what do you think it tells us that we've seen that amount of share share buybacks? Because Kevin Hassett at the White House tells me when I had him on last, yeah, that's just a sign of a healthy economy. Right. There's nothing to worry about there. So I, I'll, I'll make two points, which I'll elaborate on. One is I don't. I think share buybacks are just fine. Uh, but I also point out that that's not what they promised us would happen. Okay, so and those are two points you can keep in the same brain, right? Uh, let me explain to you the first point, which is um, one of the ways in which the markets function is by capital coming out of slower growth legacy companies and being reallocated to new high growth businesses. So that a company builds up cash. Uh, and doesn't have a place in which it can invest it. For instance, look at a, 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 a soft drink and snacks company. Do we really want them to invest in serving us more sugar, fat, and salt? Or do we want them to give us the money back so we can put it into uh, a different way to deliver food to us that's healthier and more modern? Right? I think just give me the money back and I'll put it somewhere else. I think, and that's what markets do. Markets take money out of certain companies and put them into other companies. Now, this notion that um, the market will not pay you to, uh, doesn't want companies to invest for growth is kind of um, demonstrably foolish. Because all you have to do is point to Lyft, Uber, Pinterest, Zoom, much not in, and not including you know, Amazon. Right? If you've got a good growth story, the market will take that capital. So why can't we take the, comp- the capital out of slow-growing ca- generative businesses who don't have a place to put the money and put it into growth businesses? I think that's just fine. Right? The people who oppose stock buybacks act as if the money just disappears somewhere. Or there are some who want to regulate it. Um, I mean, you have Chuck Schumer and Marco Rubio so from different parties talking about different ways that you could address this. <coughs> Maybe companies have to invest X amount in their workers, in these, you know, in, in growth areas well, before know, they do that, right? P- perhaps, but I'm not sure why you, one of the problems with socialism uh, and some elements of socialism that are practiced in countries, particularly in Europe where I saw it occur, was they kept money trapped inside of legacy economic structures that didn't work. Right. And as a consequence, they got lower growth and less employment. You mentioned Uber. Right. And but, yes, yes, go ahead. Yeah, but the second point here is that, and, what, and I've been critical of, uh, not critical of buybacks, but I pointed out that the reason why American companies weren't investing was not that their taxes were too high. Well, it was because they didn't have things to invest in. Yeah. And it wasn't because they had cash trapped offshore. It was because there weren't, because money was free. Money, yes. Over the last These two years, rates. money has basically been free. So anything that you want to invest in, you can get capital for if you have a decent credit risk. So when they said there's going to be a, a, an efflorescence of a kind of investment hiring when we, um, when we allow companies to bring the cash back, I just said, that's a bunch of BS. And now that it's, that it's manifested itself in stock buybacks, which is kind of what I expected, 
my view is don't find a different rationale. Admit that you were wrong. Admit that you sold us a bill of goods. If you see what I mean? That's, that's my only point. I haven't been critical of the companies using it. I've right. been critical of holding that out as kind of one of the promised benefits of, ta- of tax reform. More from my conversation with Glenn Hutchins after the break. You brought up Uber and Lyft. Right. Um, and we've seen the Lyft IPO, the Uber IPO. Um, we've Touch also wood. seen... I'm an, I'm an investor in Uber. Yes. Well, even better to ask you this because of that. We've seen the protests in the streets about that. We've seen the front page of the New York Times business section a few weeks ago about an Uber driver who, you know, can barely get by and, you know, drives right. full time. Sure. Understood. Can, can we talk about, Glenn, as an investor in Uber with that disclosure... Uh, where does this go? Is there a responsibility when the Uber executives and shareholders get, we'll see how the IPO goes, but very wealthy off of, off of this public offering? Uh, I don't, should drivers share in that more? So here's, let's, let's, let's look at this from a little bit uh, further back. Um, one of the most significant things happening economically, and I would argue probably the most significant thing other than following the entry of China, into the global economic system, which has been one of the most profound changes of my business lifetime. The second most profound change that is happening a little earlier, that that happened about the same time, but is getting a lot of momentum now, is the fundamental transformation of our economy from an industrial to an information economy. And we have a whole host of ways in which we organize ourselves, both commercially as well as politically, to deal with the industrial economy that don't work for the information economy. Yes. Okay. And so one of the things which, as we think about the public policy issues we described earlier, and I almost introduced this earlier, but I thought it would be too much of a digression, is the nature of the way we work has fundamentally changed. And we need to think about the nature in which we have both both private practices and public policies that go along with the way people work in order to transition ourselves to the new economy. Uh, and the, while I am deeply sympathetic to the interests of the Uber drivers and the taxi drivers who, even, who were... Yeah, the, affected. I, would also, I also think about them as a sim- symptomatic of a larger problem. Which is? Which is the nature, changing in the nature of the way things work and having to change our... So what would I do? Yes. Because uh, I guess what I'm asking you along those lines is, is it incumbent on the company to do that? Uber is just the example here. Or is it incumbent on government policy and regulation and the structural way that it works now to change. Does that make sense? Uh, well, I think it's both. Okay. I think it's both, right? In other words, um, uh, there's a big issue out there about independent contractors versus full-time employees. Because they do. So the question ICs, is, should the Uber drivers... benefits. All that kind of stuff. Right. Should Uber drivers be... Employees. Be the employees. Should they? Well, let me, let's take a step back. I'm not, I'm not sure if that's the right frame of reference, Poppy, because... You know, if you think about the transition from the agricultural economy, industrial economy, in the industrial economy, we created the concept of the employee, mm-hmm. which didn't really exist before, because before that, you just did work. Sure, sure. Right? And so if you take the industrial age concept of the employee and try to kind of, you know, jerry-rig that into the information economy, does that really work? Or do we understand that we need to think about... Uh, how we treat work and what our public policies are, are around that in a very different kind of way, yeah. right? Uh, and so uh, now, so one is, what should be the means by which we compensate for this type of work, right? The, one of the issues around that is 
um, it could well be that that's one of five or six jobs that person has, as opposed to just one. I know, but they may just want to have one if they could get by, right? Yeah, okay, but the point is, you can't always get what you want, but maybe you can get what you need. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the nice reference there. Okay. Um, and so, does, does if, if Uber has someone who works for them, I'm just asking a question, I'll give you an answer. Yeah. If Uber has someone who works for them for some number of, small number of hours a week, is that their employee? Yeah, I guess maybe if it's right. a full-time driver, right? Okay, then, then, then you might get into that analysis. I mean, we could go through yeah, the analysis, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah. But I'll give me a couple, you know, a couple of examples of, there are a whole bunch of things out there that we do with respect to public policy, which is kind of workman's compensation. Why is it tied to a particular job and to a particular employer? Right. You know, your uh, unemployment. Why is that tied to a particular job and a particular employer? Mm-hmm. And why is unemployment just, why do you have to lose a job to get unemployment? Why can't you lose hours and get unemployment so the, so the company can have more people at lower hours is what they do in Germany. I mean, there are a whole bunch of ways yeah. in which you can think about how you take, you can look at the, the very sympathetic one driver there and say that's emblematic of something that has to be done today. Or you can look at this from a broader perspective and say we need to really change this frame of reference. This, by the way, should be an important part of what the, this next presidential campaign is about. Yeah. And if we are a functional country, we wouldn't be arguing about, we wouldn't be at the level, back to the level of constitutional questions. We'd be focused on people like that and saying, how do we make America work for them? Yeah. I, I ask you, and we'll move on, but I, I, it is interesting, and I think about it a lot, as I think about the Uber and Lyft IPOs, and I think about how critical to the core of their business, at least for now, until there's autonomous vehicles, which is a whole nother ball game. Yeah, I wasn't going to raise that. Yeah, which may be what Uber is betting on here. Like the, you know, we can withstand our drivers. By the way, what about? As but, I understand it, these are, these are a little bit uh, old numbers, but about fifty percent of the cost of an Uber ride is the driver. Yeah, no. So our, our, is Uber, let me ask you this, Glenn, and then we're going to move on. We have a lot of other stuff to, to cover. You're an investor in Uber. That means you're betting on the future of this company. In 10 years, will Uber drivers exist? So, you know, so I think the, the most, from the way I think about it, the most important next thing for Uber, you know, Uber started with ride sharing and then they went to black cars. I think the important next thing is the, the, the delivery part of it. You know, they're kind of using the cars to deliver goods and services, Uber not eats. people. Yes. Or, okay. or what they call for all Uber everything. You know, so I think that's the kind of next thing. The autonomous vehicles come after that, uh, I think. Just in terms of, And so the answer is, will there be important parts of the experience which will be um, uh, autonomous? Maybe. Maybe if you're, you know, if there's an avenue in New York, like Second Avenue, and the cars can right. go up and down that avenue and drop people off like a bus. You know, okay. but if you get into very uh, and maybe some truck routes that are very kind of you know, mm, yeah, that are very kind of defined, but to have the the that you're a long way before you take the human being out of the the old, the long way or, or the complicated thing. Okay, let's talk about the Fed. Let's totally switch gears here. Oh, just <laughs> because that. you're a wonk. Just at that this stuff. You love this stuff. The president of the United States, okay. Donald Trump, right. suggested recently that we should. It would be prudent for Jerome Powell and the Fed to cut rates by 1%. In the middle of a booming economy that, that the president brags about, um, last time that happened was 2008, in the middle of the crisis. And it's ammunition you have in your war chest when there is a crisis and you need to fight it. Is it prudent for the Fed to cut rates 1% right now? I'm going to give you a very strong answer. 
maybe, but maybe not. <laughs> totally political wavering answer. No, I'm not wavering, but let me give, because it's not, that's not a yes or no question. So let me give you a, a couple points to address but That's this. really interesting, Glenn. I was sure you were going to say that's crazy. Well, if the economy requires it. But does it? No, not right now. Does anything You said, would economy? it be prudent? You yes, say, I'm saying now. Not, is not it- right now. Right now, I don't see the reason why you do it today. But, but, but the reason why I said maybe, let me take a step back. Um, what is the reason for in, what is one very powerful reason for increasing interest rates so that you can yes. reduce them again? Right. In other words, yes, of course, of course. When OK, you but need people are, to in a crisis. Yeah. When you need to in a crisis. So that's what I was referring to. I said maybe yes. Got maybe it. No. Right. OK. Um, so uh, I think it would be it would be very, very valuable from a policy perspective if we could get rates up. I'll come back to how you might do that yeah. in a minute. If we could get rates up so that we would have the room to reduce them again. Because on average in a crisis, you reduce rates about 350 basis points, 3.5 percent. Yeah. Um, that's relative to the. And so today that would make a negative interest rate. Mm-hmm. Now, there have been negative interest rates in other You'd countries, Japan. Japan and Europe and whatnot. But there are a whole host of social consequences that For go sure, along with that. For sure, and stagnation. All sort of question you need to think. So that's not a good place to be. So I think personally, I think. The performance of the economy held constant. Let's come back to what that means in a minute. I think it would be very good to be able to get to a point where you had higher interest rates so you could reduce them when you needed to. That's one. Two uh, is um, the, uh, the, the, when you think about um, markets, by the way, I should say 100% of what I'm about to say is my opinion. Got it. Okay, there's no relationship to the, to the Federal Reserve at all. It's just yes. me, okay? Got it, given your position. Yeah, in 100% York, of just me. It's just Glenn talking. Okay. Um, uh, and um, the, uh, the markets, so economic data looks backward and markets look forward. Yes. You got to remember that. Yeah. So you say unemployment is, no, unemployment is, was. unemployment was. Yeah, a month GDP ago. growth yeah. was. Yes, got it. Right, investment was. And what the more interesting and complicated task is to look forward through a glass darkly and try to decide what that means and what you're going to do about it. Mm. Okay, so the, the Fed can have a different kind of point of view about where the future is than where the current, where the future is going to be than the current situation, right? And the markets are trying, and the best way we have of understanding what that might be is to look at the markets and what are the markets forecasting. Yes. Okay. So that's, so that's kind of important to understand. Um, the second point thing to understand is the, uh, the, the Federal Reserve Act does not te- say that the Fed is supposed to manage markets. No, it's not their dual mandate. Yes, I un- completely understood that too. Okay. But, the, but it's, it's about employment and, um, and inflation. And inflation. Uh, and and the only thing the important markets are important is is transmission mechanisms to through to cost of capital uh, both debt and equity capital to the yes. real economy. So um, the fluctuations in the markets are kind of interesting, but they're not the fundamental goal. Okay. So what is that? What why is that? So it's very interesting to me that in such a healthy economy that the markets have not been able to absorb relatively modest increases in interest rates. Yeah. That the market flips out. Without flipping out. So um, and that suggests something more to me about the markets than huh. it does about the economy. Okay. Is that my point? Yeah. And so the markets, that would suggest the markets are probably overextended with respect to value rather than the economy is vulnerable to interest rate increases. Understood. 
See what I mean? That would be kind of, I think, point number two. Uh, point number three uh, is that it would be bad if we had to reduce interest rates. Because one of two things is going to happen for sure in the coming year. Right? Interest rates will either stay flat or go up or they'll go down. <laughs> there you go. For Thanks sure. for the guarantee on that. <laughs> okay. So okay. the good thing would be is that actually they were able to go up. Sure. Yes. And, and the market not to flip out. Not only did the market not flip out, but... But as the reason why they went up was that the economy continues to perform so well right. that we could actually do that. Let's see. So it would actually be a bad thing if we had to cut rates. Yes. Okay. So that, that gives that Of course it does. It seems it, it, it's odd to hear coming out of the same White House, the economy's the best it's ever been, everything's so great, and by the way, we need to cut rates a point. But okay, I digress. Let me ask you about women. Um, uh, for for a few I'm, reasons. I'm favorable. Okay, there you go. We're glad you're pro-woman. <laughs> uh, but on a serious note, I ask you this. I was so struck watching this House Financial Services Committee hearing about a month ago where Congressman Al Green had all of the big bank CEOs in front of him, nine CEOs in front of him, you name it, J.P. Morgan City, on down, and, uh, and, and, and was asked for them to raise their hand if they believe that their successor would either be a minority or a woman. And none of them raise their hands. And we still haven't had a f- woman lead one of America's biggest banks ever. Is that a problem? I think so. So, but let me, let me understand. There is, a, there is a woman running one of the large Wall Street institutions. Yes. Right. And that was a board I was on while she was coming up through her time period at the board. And so what I'm saying, I'm not saying, and she I'm not saying we did anything other than create the circumstances under which she can earn it. But what I'm saying is I've seen and know how to create the circumstances under which a woman become, can become the CEO. Who is it? It's Adina Friedman running the NASDAQ. Yeah, of course. I know. We've had her on, on right. Boss Files. Right. And so I, I have seen how you do it, and I've been a part, well, a small part of doing it. So, um, uh, so I would look at – so I would say it's um, – uh, it can be done, and it should be done. Not being inside the boardroom or the uh, or the executive rooms of those companies, I don't know kind of what's gone wrong. I will tell you that one of the things that's happened, interestingly enough, in the world in which we live, is a lot of the people who in the prior generation would have worked at banks are now working in alternative asset firms, hedge funds, private equity funds, and other places. Uh, and a lot of the talent has dispersed around the But can the other you name industries. a woman who leads one of the leading PE firms or hedge funds? Uh, well, there's a woman who running, we just profiled the other day, who runs a Soros organization. Yeah. If you know what I mean. Um, but I, uh, my only point is you want to probably have a broader frame of reference yeah. for you look at kind of where the talent is rather than just at the banks themselves. I, I ask because there's, there is an argument that some have made I don't know where I fall on it, but I'm interested. I'm intrigued by it. That perhaps the financial crisis wouldn't have been as deep and severe as it was in this country had more women been in charge of some of these banks and made some of these decisions uh, on on <clears throat> mortgage debt. And Kara Swisher, who we had on the podcast a few weeks ago, makes the argument that right now in tech, if there were more women leading some of these social media giants, Facebook, Twitter, et cetera, wouldn't be in the predicament that they're in now when it comes to some of their biggest controversies. Women think differently than men. It's not always right, it's not always wrong. We, right. we think differently. So I don't so know. So does more diversity at the top help? 
Does that make sense? I don't know how to judge that. In other words, the way I think about it might be a little bit different, which is I don't think women have to be better than men to make a very strong argument they should be in a position to be competitive for these jobs. I don't think I have to make the argument they're better. I have to think the argument they're just as good, mm -hmm. you know, rather than not, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, uh, but I, don't, I haven't thought through that one question. My, my, my more important issue is let's create a level playing field and let the best person um, uh, get ahead. And I think that's kind of what a lot of these places have not done successfully. More from my conversation with Glenn Hutchins after the break. All right, let's talk about 2020. Clearly, you're a Democrat. I'm an American. Uh, you're an American. We know politically where you're affiliated. A board member of the Obama found Foundation helping build the library in Chicago. Um, let's just talk about where, where your head is at on 2020 right now and the Democratic Party. Well, I would take a, take a step back for a minute. Uh, you know, I um, uh, am a Democrat, but not a part. I'm registered as a Democrat. I'm not a partisan Democrat. I'm a centrist. I um, have very conservative economic views relative to what's going on in the party. I have voted, you know, roughly 30 to 40 percent of the time in my career for Republicans. You have. Because I sometimes I think the Republicans are, are as good candidates, you know, particularly at the state and local level where I see someone I think is quite good. So I'm not a I'm not a sort of a what my parents' generation call a yellow dog Democrat. I I try to th I think the best people should be in place, uh, and um, so what I think right now is I think it is too bad that there aren't very able Republicans who are willing to take on Donald Trump in their own party, because there are a number of people who you know, who behind closed doors will who are Republicans who will be very critical of his conduct as president but won't take him on publicly. You would like to see more of them primary. I would like him. to see them, I would like to see them primary. I like to see people see people like Bob Corker, John Kasich, Mitch, Mitch Yeah, who by the way Romney, dropped out and Jeff of, of I mean are, are no longer right. even and, and the, the in Hogan government. fellow Larry Hogan is that his name? Yeah, Larry he's I think running. Is from Maryland. I think there should be five, six, seven, eight Republicans who okay. take him on. I think the Bush family I don't think should, it's gonna happen. It won't happen. So then your so party that's, so the that's, Democratic that's, Party. That's, so my country so the Democratic Party, though, right. then, then is, does former Vice President Joe Biden have, have the best shot, in your opinion? Does he have your support? Are you going to endorse in the primary? I'm not, well, I'm not going to endorse because uh, I, I, um, I, there are reasons why I can't. I can't. I can't engage in partisan politics. I can have a personal opinion, but I can't engage in partisan okay. politics. Um, so um, I'm not going to endorse anybody. Uh, so I would say two or three things. One is that... Um, I think it's actually very, very good that there are a lot of people out there. Um, I think one of the mistakes the, the party made in 2016 was, um, you know, crowning a candidate before there had been a competition. Interesting. Right. Uh, and there was enormous political talent. There was an attempt to do it in 2008, but there was enormous political talent by the name of Barack Obama who kind of staved that off and proved himself. Um, that No one was given that real opportunity in 2016 and we might have ended up with a different kind of place if we'd seen more candidates. So I think it's a very, um, uh, we might end up with the same, uh, we might end up with the same candidate, but that candidate might have been better um, if oh. there had been competition, right? So I think having a bunch of people out there and letting, it's like a, like a basketball tryout. Put a bunch of players on what the floor. What do you floors, know about basketball, you know, Mr. Celtics? See who's got the 48-inch vertical right. leap, right? I think that's a very positive Interesting. thing. Interesting. Uh, okay, before we go, I'm getting the wrap, but I do have a few more questions for you on, on Bitcoin and big tech. 
right. uh, the, the calls to break up big tech. The Facebook co-founder this morning in the Times just right. wrote to break up uh, Facebook. Elizabeth Warren is calling to break up Amazon and some of the other tech behemoths. Um, do we need that? I don't think so. I don't see that as a problem. Um, I think the biggest problem is uh, privacy. In other words, I, I think we need... Um, so Like two, a GDPR-type bill? Type of, exactly right. Uh, two kind of things happen when new companies create categories. In yeah. Space. One is they become natural monopolies just because they invented it. They're the only person doing it because they invented it. That's actually, there's nothing wrong with that in the law. Right, you can be, you know, Microsoft can be the only company with the operating system. You just can't use it in an anti-competitive right. way. Except an anti-competitive when you become way. anti-competitive. Except when you become anti-competitive. So, so to the extent that there's anti-competitive behavior on the part of these companies, and we have lost deal with that. To the extent that they've just Facebook created this first social network, and but you now don't think they are. Thing. You don't think Amazon is. Not, not. I don't. I mean, uh, Amazon has the big, the big effect of Amazon on our economy today is that it's driving prices down. That's not anti-competitive behavior. Right, it's not the traditional way you would look at a monopoly. Right, but 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 the, what is the big issue? The big yeah. issue is not that kind of the traditional. Again, we're going, we're, this is the technology economy, not the industrial economy. And we're using industrial sort of frames of reference yeah, to look at something brand new. You know yeah. what I mean? And so um, the big issue right now is they have a huge amount of information about us and are using it for their own purpose. I mean, a lot of people were shocked to learn that if you sign up for Facebook, they took all of your emails, all of your contacts. Oh, it's, it's amazing. And, had, and they could use it for their own purposes. Um, that shocked a lot of people. If you read the, I skimmed it, not read it thoroughly, the Senate Intelligence Committee reports on the hacking of the um, U.S. election, you'll see that um, Instagram was one of the main vectors along which um, the Russians uh, worked. Um, having some means by which you kind of regulate that to protect our democracy. So they need more regulation. So that to be really not important. Not broken up. Yeah, so, yeah, so, so the, but so the problem, what's the problem? The problem is not that they're exerting this monopoly influence in some way that extracts profitability to disadvantage people. The problem is that they've got a lot of our, our personal information. And, and it's unchecked. And it's unchecked, yeah. So what should it look like? Here's my, here's my way to think about it for you. You should be able to put your personal data in an account the way you put your money. You should be able to go to one of these places like you go to your bank. And not have other people see your balance. And not have other people use it for their purposes. Have, be able to kind of permission. Take, permission taking your data is like taking your money. Exactly. Because if data is the new oil, if it's the new yeah. currency, yeah. and you own your data, you should be able to control it. Yeah. And so we should have a set of, of disciplines that require these companies to okay. do the same thing with your money that J.P. Morgan today does with your bank account. Let's talk about finally, money and crypto and Bitcoin. You have called it, cryptocurrencies, the most important technical advance since the internet. And yet, and you've got like Charlie Munger calling it rat poison. Right. And Buffett just told me this weekend he's no fan. Right. What do you see? Well, um, so uh, I could take you through it, but um, you know, Tom Watson, even when inventing IBM, said he thought maybe he could sell five computers. People turned down Henry Ford because they thought that the horse was it's perfectly that big? good. Well, no. So I would say is that so the 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 um, we have if we get this right. So first thing to, th- to, to say is this is like for professionals. Do not try this at home. Okay. This is for trained professionals. Don't do this at home. 
One, two is it's got a very low probability of being something very big. But if it is, it's huge. If it is, it's huge. So, but, so most people focus on the, I said it was huge. They don't focus on it. I said it's got a low probability of doing that. We'll okay, make sure to use your full quote. <laughs> the third point is that it's actually more advanced um, in terms of you know, date usage, venture capital investment, all that kind of stuff, than the internet was in the mid-90s. You mean blockchain itself? Well, the blockchain is one part. Of, we, we don't want to get into yeah. details. Blockchain is one part of a three-part solution sure. that, I, that I describe as the internet of value. Oh. Okay. Um, and, uh, but if you look at where the internet of value is today relative to where the, you know, the, the te- technology that created the internet were then, we're actually more advanced today than we were, like 95, I- 96. But here's, here's yeah. what I would ask you to imagine, right? Imagine you could move anything of value around the world at the speed of light at no cost. Right, that's the, that's the win if they can get it if right. If you can get it there. And so the, 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 the problem that was the impediment to doing that, which is how to create a trust-free means of exchange, mm-hmm. was solved from a mathematical perspective by the Bitcoin solution. That opened up a series of engineering paths by which you could create technologies and then products and companies that could do that. And, and these are the companies you've invested in. The companies Is it still in. true that you have not ever bought a single Bitcoin? Well, because that was true at one point. No, no. Well, technically, what I what I said. To, um, let me correct that a little bit. I um, I I owned a ETF that had some Bitcoin in it. Okay. Because it was the product of one of the companies I had invested in. So I bought the company. But you're not product. out buying the currency. But I'm I not out buying the currencies. Now, what I have done uh, recent, more recently, because I have woken up to, I've been woke. You're woke. I'm woke. Glenn Hunt, I'm not even woke. <laughs> I w- I've woken up to the to this new form of security co- that they're represented by tokens. Yes. But I've understood that I can't really understand how to invest in myself. So I've actually ceded two small hedge fund-like players. One's a more value-based system group, and the other's more of a okay. technology-based group that are speculating in some coins with some Got of it, capital. with your money. But I haven't gone out and said, I'm going to buy Bitcoin okay. or I'm going to buy Ethereum. So just, just to wrap this part up, um, your argument, one of them, is that these cryptocurrency companies, one of them could be, if they get it right, the next Google or Amazon. But where, <clears throat> where's the Jeff Bezos? And where's the Sergey Brin and Larry Page? And do we just not know them yet? You don't know them yet, but I might. Do you? I might. I've, met, I've met a bunch. I'm investing behind them. Are you that? Im- are they that impressive? Well, Jeff Bezos wasn't Jeff Bezos until he was Jeff Bezos, right? Um, there are some very, very impressive players out there. But remember, Poppy, what we're doing right now, we're at the, we are at the point of going from engineering solutions to products, right? Math solution, math, engineering, product company. Got it. We're at the engineering to product kind of phase. The, the notion of having, this is very early days, it's the internet in the 90s. The notion that, you're gonna, that, you, that you want me to point to in 1994 what Google was going to be and say that's the obvious one, it's just too soon. That's why it's a small probability of, of getting this right, but because there are a bunch, because there are a bunch of problems too. I'm reading John Doerr's book right now, What Measure What Matters, and he talks right. about that meeting with the Google founders and them saying how big they thought Google could be and how he thought and, and look where it is now how much exponentially bigger it is than they even but thought the, that it could be one of the key things you need to do as a, as a, as an early stage investor is and this is why I say it has a small chance of being something big yeah. is you need to have a sense which you can quantify of how big it can yeah. be 
so that it's worth the risk you're taking today if you, you get it, it right. And you think it is. You if think you get it, it is. Right. All right, final question. I Glenn. think it might be. You care a lot about this country. You care a lot about the under... <clears throat> the people that fly under the radar, that we don't talk enough about and don't cover enough on the news, those most in need. So the next step that I could see in that is a run for office. Are you interested in running for any political office? No. But why? Um, why do all these CEOs, wealthy, successful people like you tell me, we have all of these problems and then none of them want to run? Is it because Washington can't get anything done? Um, for me, I think I, through the philanth- I've chosen to take a philanthropic path. And I think given the philanthropic um, opportunities I have in front of me, that I can make a very substantial impact um, without all the kind of nonsense, time, expense of kind of running for office. So it's the system. Is the system broken? I don't think it's, from my, no, look, I, I, by the way, I think elections are a good thing in large part because they test people. Uh, a very good friend of mine is now the governor of Connecticut. He, it, I think it was his third or fourth election to get himself there, and now he's there. He can yeah. do something very, uh, uh, and, he, and I have no criticism of that path he's taken, except I have a different path, which is I think I have the resources and capacity in front of me right now to get up tomorrow morning and go do something helpful. Okay. Well, Glenn Hutchins, it's fascinating, and I appreciate your time. Thank you. And I am interested in seeing what you build or donate to if Bitcoin does, <laughs> if, if this thing works. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Boss Files. If you're a new fan of the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app and subscribe. While you're there, leave us a review and let us know how we're doing. As always, you can follow me at Poppy Harlow CNN. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number Smart Beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.